Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. From WDEV Radio in Waterbury, Vermont, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint, the live radio show where we talk to everyone building the new Vermont and protecting the old one. I'm Kevin Ellis in the chair and at the mic where we take you behind the headlines to explain how Vermont and the nation really work. And to do that, we talk with guests in Vermont and around the country of all kinds with different points of view. Our goal, as always, is exploration and insight. It's Friday, Wednesday, February 22nd, the seventh week of the legislative session in Montpelier. The snow is on the way, and today we're talking to Governor Phil Scott in the 1030 slot uh, but not to mention our first guest, uh, the new president of the Ethan Allen Institute, a policy think tank with a new leader. As always, we take your calls at 244-1777 and your emails at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. We'll have the governor at 1030 and, and, and as his schedule permits, obviously, if he calls in earlier, we'll take him. And if he calls in a little later, we'll take him whenever he calls. Uh, but first, a couple of headlines. A Vermont Legislative Committee has passed a version of a paid family and medical leave bill. A Senate committee has passed what we know now as S-5, the so-called Affordable Heat Act. Much more about that later. After a contentious debate, the Vermont Senate confirmed Jennifer Barrett to be a Superior Court judge the vote is 26 to 4, which sounds like a big vote, but those votes are usually pro forma, and this one became very contentious because objections by defense lawyers and Vermonters of color objecting to what they believe were Barrett's overzealous pr- uh, prosecution decisions and the behavior of her husband, a former state trooper who was fired for his behavior toward black citizens around drug searches. Uh, so to what extent is the behavior of one's spouse uh, affect your ability to get confirmed as a judge? That's an interesting one. But after the break, uh, or actually, you know what? Let's take him before the break. We're joined by the new president of the Ethan Allen Institute for a talk about that organization and a continuation of our question whether the Republican Party and in, in Vermont and nationally, his name is Myers Mermel and he joins us live in the studio. Welcome. Thank you. And a solemn and pendant Ash Wednesday to you and happy George Washington's actual birthday. Is that true? It is. February is that- 22nd. God. There, we're, this this uh, conversation is going to be laced with <laughs> with certain old world uh, things like that, like on the Gregorian calendar, not the Julian. There, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep up with it. I'm not going to read your full bio, yes, because it's too intimidating. But suffice to say, you are a UVM grad with a master's in history from Columbia and a divinity degree from Yale. Successful real estate investor. Advisor, consultant, mostly in New York City, mm-hmm. but now full-time Vermont resident, uh, candidate for lieutenant governor in New York, and candidate for the United States Senate in Vermont. 
We'll get to more of your personal details, but why on earth would you want to become the president of the Ethan Allen Institute? <laughs> why on earth? Why not? I ask that question of every, like, I'll, I'll ask the governor, why on earth would you want to run for another term? Well, it's like coming home. Right. So I'm a direct descendant of a Green Mountain boy, a founder of the state, and uh, feel very close to the state and happy to have moved back after UVM in 2015. But Ethan Allen stands alone in giving voice to the voiceless in Vermont and looking out over uh, the majority of its population, moderate and low-income individuals. And uh, we're focused on fiscal issues. We're focused on uh, free market principles, constitutional government, and individual liberty. And as you know, um, it's uh, a kind of a one-size-fits-all state, and we're here to to represent those that are not represented. Um, I uh, think of the Ethan Allen Institute as uh, Bill Sayer, my buddy who comes mm-hmm. on after this show. Right. Um, and John McClowry. Yes. Uh, former member of the House, former Reagan White House, former member of the Vermont Senate. I consider the Ethan Allen Institute as uh, John McClowry's personal think tank. And I think your arrival heralds a kind of a new day. Do I have that wrong, or is it just going to be what we've known from Ethan Allen, or are you going to bring a new regime, and we're going to see all sorts of new policy initiatives? I hope the latter. I mean, we're headed in new directions, and I hope I'm bringing new energy. I was elected recently in January. John, as you mentioned, and Bill are both stalwarts of the Institute. It's now our 30th year. And if not for their contributions, John, for instance, writes prolifically. Um, Tell me about it. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. (laughs) And still plays pickup basketball, I believe, in the probably the Kirby Elementary School Gymnasium. You were well-versed in yeah. the ins and outs of Vermont. Yes, that's all true. Yeah. And, um, yeah, he, he has, he has carried the torch. So my hope is to bring greater funding and greater, um, greater emphasis on the, on the important mission of Ethan Allen. Uh, we, we were tending to shrink and we want to grow our base and grow our voice working, uh, with legislators to, to make policy better. So, key distinction here, I want to make sure I don't get this wrong. You're focused on policy. Right. Not electoral politics. Correct. So it's not necessarily, let's get more free market Republicans elected. You're not like the uh, Emerge Vermont. Republican Party. Well, the Republican (laughs) Party, or say Emerge Vermont, which exists for the sole purpose of training and electing Democratic women. Right. Okay. Well, we, you know, um, we're not. We're a 501c3. We're fundamentally an, an educational institute, and we're trying to bring deeper, deeper research to policy. That's one of the changes I want to make is to go back into our history of white papers. I mean, there are four four legs of a table for a think tank. Um, one is deep research. The other is investigative reporting. The third might be litigation support. And the last would be legislative support. So what I'm trying to do is build those four tables. We've been very strong at having commentary or investigative reporting, but we need to have deeper analytics. So, for instance, just off the top, we started with analytics on S5, and we want to grow and build that area of our practice so that we can inform 
legislators and inform citizens of, of what the true cost of these things are. Remember, we're focused on fiscal issues and not on the social issues. And the fiscal issues really cover all Vermonters um, and are a critical part of a policy. So name a fiscal name. Give me two. Let, I want to get to S5, the, the Affordable Heat Act, after right. the break. We'll yeah. do that, a detailed analysis. But what's top of mind on your agenda? Well, all these, you know, all these uh, new bills that are coming forth in in the legislature all have a fiscal component, right? And um, everything we ad- address has a fiscal component. And the question is, what can the state afford? Now, the state has been flush with, you know, federal money, but that federal money is going to run out. And uh, we want to make sure that people aren't counting uh, chickens they don't have or eggs they don't have, federal money, money that won't get there. It's hard to imagine that Kevin McCarthy is going to direct more spending programs or that, you know, there will necessarily be a a Democratic uh, executive in 2024. So we want to make sure that uh, Vermont continues to be self-reliant and independent itself as a state. Uh, It's it's tempting to call uh, the Ethan Allen Institute a conservative place. But that word is now, given uh, the last 10 years or so of politics, there's the old conservatives of, of Robert La Follette, and there's the new conservatives, and there's the far right, and there's the – where does the Ethan Allen Institute sit on the spectrum of free market conservatism? Well, I think you're conflating some issues, but um – it sounded, it. it sounded good. Sounded good. <laughs> it sounded good. Well, conservative is the shorthand, right? I, I, I see a lot of journalists refer to us as conservative. We're really right of center. Um, okay. That isn't necessarily conservative. And I, I do want to say I'd like to see Ethan Allen become more Dewey-esque. Uh, John Dewey was my fraternity brother, uh, right, and the author of Pragmatism. And okay, we have, Wait, wait, wait. You, but you weren't in the fraternity together at the same time. Uh, depends on how you look. At it. <laughs> he graduated in '79. There's a plaque to him on the UVM campus. There's his grave. Yeah, to him. <laughs> tell right. us, tell us about, uh, tell us about Dewey in 30 seconds or so. Dewey was a tremendous philosopher and was the descendant, was the intellectual descendant of the Burlington School of Philosophy that was founded by James Marsh, continued under Tory. Um, Burlington was a remarkable place in uh, the 19th century, and um, Dewey was its intellectual flower in terms of philosophy and his his impact on education as well as impact on on how we view the world. Uh, he also tried very hard to integrate a, a Christian worldview with an emerging industrial society, which I find fascinating. Mm. Okay. Let's get back to the mission. Uh, you want to influence policy. Mm-hmm. Back to the white papers, I'm really interested in the investigative reporting piece because I think um, as the Burlington Free Press shrinks and disappears, there's a place for journalism. But I would, So yeah, right. speak freely about the mission of the Institute and where you want to take it. I think one of the things that we need to consider is that um, with the worldview now ascended in Vermont, we see that care for our fellow neighbor – Right, uh, a respect for the humanity of others, right, is taking second place. 
behind a utilitarianism that ranks other priorities above that. And I think all of us have to realize that there's nothing more important than the humanity of other people. It's as we were just talking about, right? Immanuel Kant said it, it's a categorical imperative. It comes before a moral imperative. Respect for humanity. Without that, we don't have anything. And so what we're, what we're trying to do is we're not trying to block things. I think in the past, and certainly there have been people on right of center or on the conservative side who just say no, right? That's just the answer. No. What, what is, you know, before the question's even asked. No. <laughs> Which is not constructive. And, and that's why you see a lot of right of center candidates on a statewide basis end up with 28%, right? But we want to move towards where Vermont is. I mean, look at Phil Scott, right? Look at Bernie Sanders. They are 70%. Yeah. So who are those people, right? How can we talk to them? How can we help develop better policy? But we think that that ethics and morality are at the center of a lot of this policy and that we've lost that in our, our zeal for for other initiatives. And And I don't think that we can put policy in front of people. I don't think that's right. So I have a no, I have 10 reactions to that, but I'm going to go I'll with wait. my I'm going to go, I'm going to go with my <laughs> first one which is right. Well, the super majority of the uh, demo, overwhelmingly democratic legislature would say we agree with you. Uh-huh. That's why we're doing paid family leave, child care, universal school meals, climate um that's exactly what our agenda is. Okay. Well, I, I'm just – because we're not deeply resourced at Ethan Allen, we've been very focused on S-5. Right. Right, and that's the Affordable Heat Act. Yep. And that's not the case in the Affordable Heat Act. And through our calculations, this is not a $2 billion program as Cadmus or Pathways indicated or Julie Moore indicated. It's a $5 billion program basically being paid for by Vermonters themselves. Right. Keep, yeah. And this is going to be a, a huge lift for low and moderate income people. They just can't do it. They don't have $40,000 to pay for their own improvements. The whole program is $5 billion, and the state and federal government have $380 million to offer. So they, you know, the legislators talk about, oh, well, they're incentives, but that's only 7% of the program. I mean, they're basically going to funnel the money through the fuel dealers, through high uh, excess fuel surcharges of like $4 a gallon. That's going to punish low and moderate income Vermonters. That's not moral. That will dis- that will severely threaten our BIPOC community. You know, you, you've done a, a, a deep analysis of this and you testified on this subject. It's not subject. even that deep. Before the Senate be uh, Natural Resources Committee last <laughs> February 16th. Week. Yeah, last week. On yeah. A week ago. So right. l- let's do the what first. Uh, yeah, what are we talking about? Wh- what are we talking about here? Okay. So what we're basically talking about are, are achieving CO2 reductions. Right. Right. And in order to achieve- – And helping all Vermonters be warmer in a more efficient way. That's the goal, right? Well – Yes, but yes, that is a goal. Um, but the question is, can the program achieve it? And our issue is not with the goals. Now, there are a number of people on the right, further right than us, that you know want to get into climate denial, that want to fight climate, want to fight global solutions. We're not here to do that. Uh-huh. We're just saying, look at the overwhelming majority of uh, 
Vermont's population want to see climate measure enacted. That's why, you know, the House and Senate are predominantly Democrat and progressive, right? People want those enacted. The, the, the program that the Vermont Climate Council came up with, it kind of developed in a vacuum and it's not a good program. And Governor Scott last year asked them to go back and look at the cost and they didn't do it. Right. And so finally, a person on the climate program, Julie Moore, came up with very tepid, well, uh, God bless her. I mean, well, she said the numbers are, she, I think the quote was, I don't know, they're in the ballpark, but feel free to say well, that they're wrong. I mean, she, <laughs> she was very politic about the whole thing. Right. But she was also attacked mercilessly, um, by those people in the climate council. I mean, she came up with basic estimates, which we believe are demonstrably wrong, right? Just go to your contractor, talk to people. The citizens of Vermont will know these prices are not right. So for weatherization of 885,000 homes, she said that could be done for 10,005. We have a comparable program uh, at scale in Iowa that did about 700 homes, and the average there was uh, $17,000, right? You, in Vermont, to do the shell and the systems, you've got to rip the walls off. You've got to insulate. You may have to touch the electric uh, you may have to bring things up to code. You have to do the doors and the windows. You can't do that for ten five. If you can get the contractor. Right. Let's just say they uh, – I'm sure they'll magically appear from New Jersey, Massachusetts, right. and, and uh, New Hampshire, and none of the money will go to us. But um, on the heat pumps, for instance, she was saying that 145,000 homes need a – need heat pumps at $5,000. Now, these systems, you, you can't even buy the machines for $5,000, these split systems. Then they have to be installed. You need multi-heads or you need ducting. People people like to live in more than one room. I don't know if you know that, right? I bought a new furnace uh, a month ago. It's ten grand. An oil furnace? Uh, gas. Oh, man. Ten grand. Why didn't you go for a heat pump? It's just, uh, it Did doesn't... Did you not get the memo? It doesn't work below, ten below. And I've got a wood stove and okay. et cetera, et cetera. All so, sorts of complications. So there was but I take an, your point. There was an analysis of um, heat pumps installed in Massachusetts from 2014 to 2019. And something like 90% of those people um, that installed heat pumps re- retained a secondary system. And the, and the vast majority of those people, heat pumps was the secondary system of the two systems they had. Yeah, interesting. Right. But let's leave that aside. Yeah, Just leave the that cost aside. estimates, right? At 5,000, we looked at uh, Efficiency Vermont. There was somebody from Efficiency Vermont who testified before the House and said it's anywhere from 18 to $40,000 for a heat pump system in a house. We chose the number 23,000, right? Let's say you, you have to, to install them for, for three rooms. And we're not even talking about the electricity effect. A lot of people like heat pumps to cool their houses, which they never had, which is going to be a load. And then we said on uh, heat pop water heaters, Julie Moore was at 3000 We just added 1000 for an ele- electrical upgrade. But the total weighted average cost for her was about 13000 per home, over 145000 home, and we were at 37000 Okay, so talk about the financing mechanism for this. If you, you, the average Vermonter who wants to do this, right? How are are they writing a check? Is their fuel dealer going to do it? How does this work? What are the mechanics? This is the this is the issue, right? So for the thirty seven thousand dollars, right, which sixty percent, right, the the lowest three quintiles of Vermonters, right, sixty percent, twenty 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 earn less than $45,000. So this investment, 
is equal to an to an annual income for them, right? And these are mostly the heat heat fuel users, sure, right? And so for them, they're going to be forced to pay for it themselves or borrow. Now I know on WDEV it says you get five thousand dollars off. There's only eighty million from the state to fund that program, and there might be three hundred million from the federal government through 2026 to fund that program. But that money will run out, yeah. right? And so that means there's literally $5 billion more that these people have to pay themselves, and it's done through a circular payment system of increasing the per-gallon charge on fuel. And in order to pass through on a five-year basis enough money to fund everybody, right, because these people don't have the money themselves, that's going to be a $4 a gallon increase in fuel costs. So when Irving Oil uh, comes to my house, as they did yesterday, uh, and hook the hose up to the underground propane tank, I'm uh-huh. paying an extra $4 a gallon. But let's hit Irving Oil because that's been uh, an entity that was mentioned in testimony. Oh. And this idea – I think there's this idea on the Climate Council, and they, the Climate Council talks a lot about Irving Oil. But the fuel dealers – and they want Irving Oil to contribute. Well, the Climate Council doesn't have Irving Oil on the hook. They don't have Gazprom. They don't have Shell. They don't have BP, right? The, the, the people that are actually delivering the fuel, it's not a big business. It's fragmented. That's yeah, true. You've got Gillespie Fuels in Northfield. So let's let, let's just be quantitative about it. At most, it's 250 million uh, gallons a year. Okay. These guys work at about seven cents a gallon. Yeah. Let's be generous and say it's a it's a dime, right? It's a 25 million dollar business. That's it. So if you made these people work for free and contribute all their profits, that most they could contribute over five years is 125 million. That's it. But the Climate Council thinks they're going to contribute 300 million. They think that. Um, that state administration of this $5 billion program will cause zero. They think the default delivery agent, who's kind of the middleman in all this, is going to work for free. Right. Yeah. Okay. So that was pretty good. Now we're going to take another break, and we're going to stay with S5, the Affordable Heat Act. Um, you climate people out there, you you pro-S5 people, hang on to your hats. We'll spend a whole show on this at another time, but we're going to stay with this. But I also want to ask you uh, what makes you so smart on this issue and what qualifies you to be the president of the Ethan Allen Institute? Because yeah, good question. Because we want to get back into your bio. Right. It's WDEV, it's Vermont Viewpoint, and I'm Kevin Ellis. We'll be right back. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Kevin Ellis, Vermont Viewpoint. Our guest is Myers Mermel, the president of the Ethan Allen Institute. So I deliberately avoided your bio, but as we got into S5, the climate, the Affordable Heat Act, the Climate Act that just passed the uh, Senate Natural Resources Committee and is going to be on its way to approval in the Vermont Senate, uh, your qualifications for this analysis that you're doing and to run the Ethan Allen Institute kind of jumped out at me. 
you spent a long time in New York City. You are you were the managing member of Mermel and McLean Management LLC. That's a real estate acquisition firm. Uh, you were chief executive of TenantWise, a real estate advisory firm. You led Morgan Stanley's corporate real estate group within the investment banking division from 1990 to 94. Um, you bring financial acuity to these analyses, uh, and that is something of a new uh, a thing that you're bringing to the table here. Um, we haven't seen that kind of financial analysis on this kind of stuff before. No. So it uh, sounds like you're not going to restrict the, that um, that background of yours to S5. You'll no. expand it out. Well, uh, there's a lot of financial implications to the policies that are being created. And unfortunately, there's a lack of muni bankers that are working on these larger projects. So I left Vermont after graduation from UVM. I had two job offers. One was to be a floor refinisher with <laughs> with my fraternity brother's father, which was a solid job. Um, but then I was also able to get the first ever job from the Bank of New York training program from UVM Career Counseling. And so I took the job in New York because it paid a whole lot more. Uh, it paid $22,000 and, um, which was big money in 84. And I, and I, I couldn't find economic opportunity for me here in Vermont. And I know a lot of people haven't. So I came back in 2015 because I had spent a lot of time on Wall Street. I had spent time in the real estate investment business and the, the tools of our trade are basically the discounted cash flow model. Which is, which is the model that predicts social cost of carbon. And if you work in these model, you know, with these models on a daily basis, you understand how assumptions move the models without even actually having the model. So right. the social cost of carbon model for inexplicably has not been released. And, uh, Representative Gina Galfetti yesterday asked joint fiscal to get the model and analyze it and they refused to do so. I mean, I hope. Governor Scott will implore Julie Moore, who sits on the Climate Council, to release those models so we can look at them. But I can tell you the discount rate that they used was just just inappropriate and produced billions of dollars of fake savings. The other thing about the model, which is clear, um, which I think everyone can understand, is that these heat pumps have a 15-year life. The right. savings model they did was 35 years. There's no bump in year 15 to replace all the heat pumps, which would be another four billion dollars. So, you know, the economic justification for this of, oh, we want to save you money and their vagaries in fuel prices will save you $6.4 billion. There are no savings under this program. It's only cost. All that's been eradicated, and we can prove that in the model if they share it with us. But as we were talking about before on the finance side, you know, Climate Council built these with, these models with a lot of MPAs and MPPs, right? Not MBAs, right? Tell us what that is. So Masters of Public Policy, Masters of Public Administration, right? These are the people that work the gears of government, right, that, that, that pull the levers of government, right? Yeah. And they're trained at a graduate level on how government works. Right, but there, there it, it didn't look like there were many MBAs weighing in on this, right? And they certainly didn't. I even asked in the committee, like, this is a $5 billion financing. Like, where's Goldman Sachs on this? Like, why don't you? I worked on those muni deals, right? I raised a billion dollars for Battery Park City as the muni banker. I worked directly as the exclusive 
uh, banker to Governor Pataki in the reconstruction after 9-11, over 886 million square feet. So, you know, where are these advisors? I mean, these programs have huge economic impact, and we're just asking people to look at them. Let me put on my um, left-wing uh, yeah. Bill McKibben climate change hat here. Okay. Um you say, where was Goldman Sachs in all this? Goldman Sachs is what got us into the 2008 mess. Uh, I'm putting on my Bernie Sanders hat here. Climate change is a, is a, is a, is a, is our destruction roaring down on us. Uh, we need to do something now and we need to be, and we need not be taking advice from the people who got us into the 2008 recession. The vampire squid. The vampire squid. Yes. Uh, yeah. Matt Taibbi's phrase right. in Rolling Stone. Yeah. Because they got us into this mess. Yes. The pharmaceutical companies, the, the Wall Street bankers. Dirty, greedy. Dirty, bankers. greedy bankers. Yeah. Why should we be relying they on them? Prison in 2008. Absolutely. Why, why, why would we actually look to advice from them? Right. Well, because these are large financing. So you're conflating the two issues. No one's, no one's saying stop climate, stop your climate measures. We're, we're trying to narrow in on the process of how do you get the money to fund these changeovers. Right. And there's no, I think, there's no blood in the stone. These are low and moderate income people. There's not, they don't have five billion dollars. Right. So what's going to happen? And what's going to happen is that they're initially the the way this program is going to roll out is that they're going to you know try to push down as much of a surcharge as possible. But if they only push down seventy cents on each gallon, it will take twenty eight years to reach climate goals. And this is what I said to the committee. You're not achieving your climate goals by this program. Figure out another way to finance this. Figure out a way to finance this through the state or figure out, you know, how the federal government can help. And so why do you need a banker? Well, you need to look at what is the effect of all this borrowing going to do the state's credit rating, right? And what credit does the state have and what ability does the state have to raise money? And maybe you want to strap on debt for this. Right. And maybe that's the way to do it. But at least look at these options. And those haven't been looked at. What was the committee's reaction to your testimony? Um, they were polite. It, but by the way, the, the Senate Natural Resources Committee, for those of you who don't know, has no Republicans on it. It's all Democrats. I thought they were all Republicans. They're all Democrats. <laughs> it's just a function of numbers. They, they you know. Well, they were very, they were very kind. And, they were. Yeah. And Senator Bray, uh, was very kind to me and allowed me to testify. And he didn't have to do that. And he put me in at the end, uh, and created time for me, uh, and for Ethan Allen. I say for me, but, uh, it was really for Ethan Allen and for, and for right of center people to speak or give their ideas. Unfortunately, there's such pressure. So the title, uh, of my presentation was between, uh, Scylla and Charybdis. Keep going. Right? So yeah. if you remember your Homer, book 12, right, here we find Ulysses in the Straits of Messina between one monster, a whirlpool, uh, on one side of a ship and another monster on the other side of a ship with, with six heads. And so he goes to the oracle and says, how do I get through this? Right? And so what he has to do is he sails against uh, Scylla and she eats six of his best men. But he's able to escape. Right. But he loses people along the way. Right. And he's in an untenable situation. And that's and and that's the moral choice here of the process that they've chosen, not the idea of achieving climate measures, but the process that they've chosen pits climate change measures against 
the welfare and well-being of low and moderate income Vermonters. It is it this policy creates an income equality. It creates more structural racism. I'm okay. saying that. Hello. Yeah, I Hello. Uh, oh, I heard Hello. you. This is from Ethan Allen, right? This is creating structural racism, and we've seen how that works, right? I saw structural racism when I had to walk by the Perkins building at UVM every day, and that name is still on that building. Isn't that remarkable, right? We want to change the names of the high school mascots, but Perkins is still up at UVM, right? That started our eugenics program. That is structural racism, right? There's a lot of cleanup we, we could do in this state, right? But we need to, we need to continue our work. So, um, put the, put a pin put, in that pin because that. we're going to come back back to that after the break. Right. I want us now. Okay, you're the chair of the committee. Right. It's your bill. What do we do on climate? Oh, if I was chairman and, and affordable heat, you're now Senator Bray, and um, I'm a Democrat with with massive pressure. On well, no, you're president of Ethan Allen Institute. What what should we do? You know, we should look at this process and how to treat low and moderate income Vermonters fairly, which means we've got to bring in outside money, either from the state or federal government. We can't expect these people to finance it on their own. And the way they're doing it is testimony said they're going to, you know, force these people, you know, through these high surcharges to change that they're going to punish the polluters. But that's not correct. Everyone in the state has polluted. But it's it's. It's basically the people uh, of low and moderate income, the less fortunate, they're going to pay for the pollution of everyone. Why don't we That's just, not constitutional. Why don't we way. just raise the taxes on the rich? I asked one of the senators that, right? You, and they – and Not enough rich people to go around. Well, no. Answer. I mean uh, – but, you know, the answer is, well, you can't raise property taxes. Or I said, what about just, you know, how do we make sure that the out-of-state people who have second homes here – Right, participate. If you believe that climate measures are important, you want to spread this out over everybody, don't you? And now, I, I'm from Ethan. We're not in favor of taxes. Right. Right. But I, I can see the policy imperative, right, if I was Senator Bray. Is, but I can also – I also understand that there's just a, a massive impetus uh, on the left to get this done, right, to fly the plane uh, – build the plane while it's flying, yeah. right, or fly the plane while you're building it. If I'm not uh, mistaken, I heard you say in the first 15 minutes of this show, people of color or BIPOC. I can't remember which now. BIPOC. I'm not used to hearing the words Ethan Allen Institute and BIPOC in the same sentence. Can you – let's get into that a little bit. What did you mean? What were you, I can't even remember what we were talking about. You, you we There's a council. Five, right? Yeah, but, okay. Right. Go the, ahead. The, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Yeah, right. King actually didn't say that. It was uh, Theodore Parker. Theodore Parker. I Age just read about it in Lincoln's bio, in the bio, new biography of Lincoln by John Meacham. I just oh, read, read all about this. Right. Yeah. yeah. Theodore Parker. You probably read Unitary. the original text in the stacks at you know at the now defunct libraries, which are being closed. Right. Right. Yeah. We'll get to that later. Yes. No. No. But talk about that. So. We did endorse what the Vermont Renews BIPOC Council said about S5 last year, which that it does reinforce white supremacy, that it does reinforce income inequality, and it's going to have a disproportionate impact on the BIPOC community. S5. S5. We don't have that. We don't really have a BIPOC community. 
right? It's a very small group, right? And it's going to be a lot of pressure on them. And it's also going to be a lot of pressure on poor white people, yeah. right? And low and moderate income white people, yeah. right? And that's what I, I, I intend when I talk about respect for the humanity of others. Some people are less fortunate and we're putting this huge burden on them. And these are seniors that can't afford, you know, medication. They can't afford to, you know, uh, their food. I mean, inflation's rampant. It's, it's very hard for, for people today. And now we're going to, to lay on this fuel surcharge to force them to change, you know, to enter, to change their, their, uh, the energy basis for their home. Yep. It's too much. Okay, take us now up to 30,000 feet yep. and, and add to S5. Right. Paid family leave, child care, uh, housing, a lot of that's federal money, uh, and universal school meals. And everyone in the state house is asking the same question of democratic leadership. How are you going to pay for all this? They respond, that's an unfair question. Let us do our policy work first and then we will figure out how to pay for it. But go up to 30,000 feet and as the president of the Ethan Allen Institute and look at that list of expensive right. of, of spending and react, please. Uh, well, um, I think it, it would not be um, unjudicious to say that it, it, all these programs may not be possible, right, and that we need to moderate some of these programs or changed how they're financed. It's not that the programs have are bad or that the impetus for the programs are bad or that we should say no to all these things. It's we just don't have the money to to, to pay for all these things. And and Governor Scott um, often finds the middle. Right. He is the conscience of Vermont is the way I think of him, because he tries to introduce these these tenants of fiscal responsibility so that, that these programs can be successful. One of the things that we're worried about on S5 is something we're calling the carbon doom spiral, mm-hmm. that once this program gets enacted and we're in it at 70 cents, and it's clear that it's going to take 28 years to get to climate goals, that the legislature is going to be forced to jack that, that number up. And that's just going to continue to, you know, make life more difficult for low and moderate income people because year after year, they don't have the money. They can't borrow. I mean, these people are maxed out as they are. They don't have money, uh, you know, on line of credit. They don't have HELOCs. Rates are up now at 7%. They maybe have access to unsecured credit, but that could be 12 to 24%. I mean, they don't, they don't have equity. I mean, they don't have equity. Right. I mean, the equity investment they're making is in survival. Yeah, they don't have a five hundred thousand dollar home that they can, you know, or, get a home loan or whatever. Yeah, or a five hundred thousand dollar, you know, investment portfolio with Merrill Lynch. They don't. Right. Right. Um, okay. Now I want to talk about some politics. Uh, at the, on the, at the beginning, uh, we've been doing a series very unsuccessfully called "Wither the Republican Party." Yes. Um, and I mean this in all sincerity. Mm-hmm. The, the, the Republican Party, I guess, has split into two factions or, you know, there's the, there's the, the Phil Scott Republican Party, which is now tiny. Right. Uh, but properly managed by someone like Phil Scott, it's mm-hmm. hugely successful. Right. Most popular Republican in the country. I could, you could argue that. Yeah. 
and yet over there is now because of what uh, Donald Trump, Fox News, uh, all sorts of you know you can go back a hundred years uh, to Reconstruction to if you really want to mine this down the rabbit hole. You now have a, a, a right wing of the Republican Party. Where the Republicans Party. put forth the abolition president yeah. and dismantled Democrat Jim Crow? Y- y- yes. Yeah. And the Democrat Klan? Yes. Yes. And then – And but, then – But now we are where we are right. uh, with Marjorie Taylor Greene calling the shots – and being it gets banned. Even call the shots for herself. Banned from a com, banned from committees uh, by by the House for her racist and anti-Semitic statements. Now she's on the House Oversight Committee and is the biggest fundraiser in the Republican Party. They love her. How do you? Ma- I'm I get not sure that's all true. But oh, I get the emails. It's a great story every day. Every day. And she's standing right next to Kevin McCarthy. So do we want to on talk TV. national politics? I want to just go there first for three minutes and then but then let's go the Yeah, how do you how does someone like you exist within that? How do you manage that? How do the what is the where does the Republican Party go nationally from here? I, I yes, but if you really step back and look at both parties, both parties are being controlled from the outside, right? That let's say that the Trump forces outside of the of the mainstream Republican Party, right? Right, and Bernie Sanders is on the outside of the mainstream Democrat Party, right? Right, and both of those outside influences are all or nothing, right? And both of those outside influences um, are very harsh on their opponents. And both of those outside influences believes there can be no peace until victory, and that's okay. and that and that sets a and that sets the table for a very nasty 2024 and very nasty 2025. Right, and that's why I I, I wanted to to work with Ethan Allen. That's why I want to see a moderating influence. That's why I want to see peace and prosperity. But I wouldn't equate Bernie Sanders. Who's a guy who knows how to make a deal with Marjorie Taylor Greene? I didn't. Yeah, I, I, I said Bernie Sanders equals Donald Trump. Interesting. And okay. I love them both. Uh, Bernie Sanders equals Donald Trump. Yes, they're the converse. It's a binary, night and day. Black yeah, and but white. yeah, but Bernie Sanders is Sanders. nowhere near the kind of guy that Donald Trump has demonstrated himself to be towards women. Uh, towards towards people of color. I'm talking policy. Okay. Yeah, I mean that that's all the personal stuff. Leave it aside. You want to leave it aside. I, is it important? Well, yeah, I think it is. I mean, we elected a man, Trump, who said some. You know, a lot of people are very upset at him. Heinous things. Yeah. Understood. Yeah. Yeah. But let's just uh, on on policy. Okay. And I'm, I'm taking a much broader view. Yeah, yeah, right? I understand. And a broader agnostic view. Yeah. Right, of, of what's happening in national politics. Okay. But we're in a remarkable place here in the state, right, because Bernie is an icon of Vermont. And he came out with a new book today. I saw the schedule for the book tour. He's yeah. in England tomorrow. It's insane. Well. That makes sense. I have a a theory about him, but I don't want to get sidetracked. But a theory about him that he is the most, and I think it's an underreported story, not an overreported. He is the most recognizable political figure, maybe with the exception of Trump and Biden, Mm -hmm. in the world. 
and uh, from a guy who got three percent of the vote running for governor for twenty years, and the climb has been. I was. I can't explain it. I was president of college Republicans uh, at UVM. Yeah, there, I was the only member, so of course I won that election. <laughs> But I, I was the one who was responsible uh, for the Burlington uh, Republican Party for putting the kegs in the uh, fraternities and sororities to get the vote out. And they didn't spend enough money. That's why Bernie won. On that note, uh, we're going to be right back. We're going to do a nec- an extra 15 minutes with this guy because we're going down some great rabbit holes. And that's what live radio is about. It's WDEV right here in Waterbury. We're back. Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis on WDEV, the friendly pioneer, live radio. And our guest is Myers Mermel, the new president of the Ethan Allen Institute. And we are doing a bonus round of 12 more minutes because we've got lots of policy and political rabbit holes to go down. Okay, we dealt with the National Republican Party. Now let's go to the Vermont Republican Party. You have... Uh, and I know you stick to policy, so right. I don't want to drag you into electoral politics, but it's too fun to, you can't, I can't resist it. You got a legislature that is overwhelmingly democratic. Elections mm-hmm. happen for a reason. They matter. Have consequences. They have consequences. And yet you've got an overwhelmingly popular moderate Republican governor in Phil Scott. Um, in the old days, Democrats would fear, would say to themselves, we can't go too far on all of these issues because we will, there will be backlash at the ballot box. I'm going to venture a guess and say, that's not, that's not a fear anymore. There's no, there's no Republican pushback in this state anymore. I'm not sure if that's exactly true. And okay. I think what we're trying to do is, is to represent the, the, the Phil Scott 70%. Right. If you look at the state demographically, right, from recent surveys, it looks as if it's about 20 percent Republican, 20 percent independent, 40 percent Democrat and 20 percent progressive. Yeah. Right. And he's able, like Welch and and Senator Sanders, to pull that uh, like a large majority. Right. The Republican Party, we don't have any affiliation with. Right. But we can see from the outside that. It can be its own worst enemy, right? It is divided, right? It's it's the purists versus the syncretists, right? The people that are right. trying to ad- adapt and adopt. Right. Um, I didn't understand the word syncretist, so but syncret- I'll take it. Well, syncretism, <laughs> right, is the is the bar, and not to get too in the weeds, but this is not unprecedented, right? The Catholic Church. Speaking of Ash Wednesday, the Catholic Church is often uh, called syncretist because they're able to appropriate cultural issues, right, and weave them into their theology. Right. Right. So um, My Country Tis of Thee, for instance, in music, right, is based on God Save the King, right, yeah. the same music. It's called uh, contrafactum, Got it. right, in music. So the yeah. idea is to use the same melody but change the words. So that's what syncretism is, and that – and I think what Governor Scott points us to is the fact that Vermonters as a whole are generally fiscally conservative, but they are socially liberal or progressive, right? And so for the Republican Party to fight on the social issues is not a winning – you know, for them to want uh, you know, the same social measures that take place in the southern states to be enacted up here is not realistic. And yet they do. And yet they do, and yet they will because – um, for many, it's a faith claim. For mm-hmm. many, pro-life is a faith claim. Sure. Right? And those, as we know, can't be refuted. 
Mm-hmm. So that's going to continue to happen. It, however, right, uh, the rest of us living on this temporal sphere want to sort of move ahead. You know, how can we help policies be fiscally responsible and at the same time allow Vermont to find its own direction, much like Governor Scott does? And that's why I talk about him as the conscience, right, because he's urging us to sort of consider all the people here, consider all all the things that go into making these policies. Okay, we're going to take a quick call from Rama in Williamstown. Rama, you're on the phone with the new president of the Ethan Allen Institute. Welcome. All right. Yeah, I'll be really quick here, and I'm talking specifically about the Ethan Allen Institute here on this comment. Uh, back in 1998, it might have been 99, but I think it was 98 sometime, I interviewed uh, John McClowery on the radio up in Barrie, well, up for me in Barrie, and I, I got to tell you, listening to the new head of the Ethan Allen Institute, it doesn't sound any different from my perspective, because what I hear is a whole litany of why we shouldn't be doing some of the things that we absolutely need to do instead of this is what we need to do. How can we get it done? So the Ethan Allen Institute, they may want to paint it over with some fresh white paint. But it's it's still the same basic, oh, my God, this is going to be too difficult, too expensive to do. Let's give up and not do anything. Okay. So. Thanks for the call. Go ahead. Well, they say change is hard. And I guess change is hard for Rama. Right. Things have changed. We're not saying no. We're not. We're not saying no. If you had listened to what I said, I've been very focused on the process they're using. We're not disagreeing with the policy goals or where, where the, the vast majority of the citizens want to go, right? I've, I've said maybe uh, three or four times, right, that the citizens have elected people because there's a climate imperative and they want climate measures to be enacted. Our, uh, what we want to talk about is how best to do that. And unfortunately, the committee that was supposed to come up with a way to do it didn't look at the cost of these things, and it threatens the implementation of this policy. We're saying you're only going to make things worse yeah. on climate. So I'm not standing in the way. I'm not, you know, uh, uh, Cassandra about this. We're trying to be helpful. You don't have to, you know. Move on, right? Just caravan rule, roll on. So keep rolling. But, you know, when you realize that you're not getting the climate measures that you, that you expected and you wonder why, uh, we're telling you maybe you should have thought about doing it a different way. Well, this is exactly what the governor said in his inaugural address, but more specifically in his budget address when he talked about the gentleman that he ran into in the driveway in Island Pond who said, you are crushing me. I cannot take this anymore. So what you're doing is positioning the Ethan Allen Institute right in the bullseye of Governor Scott's uh, voters mm-hmm. and and what and his rhetoric and his policy. That's what you're doing. Well, I, I but I think he he speaks for moderate Vermont. Yeah, right. He speaks for the vast majority of us. Yeah, and and what we need to address is how to do things, how to accomplish. The measures we want to accomplish effectively and fairly in a moral way. That's all. And by the way, stay no. tuned because the governor himself is coming on the show at 1030. So stay tuned. We're going to keep talking about these issues. Um, what's your, you're a, you're a finance guy, a real estate guy. You, right. you know, business plans and checklists. What's your checklist for the Ethan Allen Institute? What do you have to get done in the first 
six months of your tenure? Well, just to, to boil it down, we need to revise our website. Uh, it does a very good job of pushing people away. So we, we like to, uh, we're publishing a lot of content and John McGlowry, as I mentioned, is incredibly prolific. And I think he produced something like 144 pieces, uh, last year. <laughs> so, um, and he's on a, a very steady schedule and he also speaks frequently. So, yeah. uh, we, as you know, we have Rob Roper. Uh, former president who now has his own substack and he's been a very good investigative journalist actually looking at conflict of interest recently on some of these issues, which is not a small issue. Um, so oh, I'd come like- on. It's a small state and we all know each other and, and there's no chicanery and that, that my friend. So yeah, right. I did run for lieutenant governor of the state of New York and what I found out and I had support of a lot of counties. But what I found out is that, unfortunately, these conflicts can often subvert democracy, and that's a shame, Yeah. right? And that not everybody's in it for the good of the people, for the good of the country, for the you know the for the greater you know the greater good, yeah, right? And that subverts what people are trying to accomplish. So I think we have to be more transparent, and we have to identify these conflicts, right, and hopefully solve them. Um, Do you have one off the top of your head? I'm trying to think of one, but that's a conflict. Yeah. Well, look at our congressional race, right? We had Becca Ballant, who yeah. unfortunately was funded with stolen money. Yep. Right. I hope that she returns the money to the victims. Yeah. Right. And on the other side, we had a Republican candidate who, by his own admission, I think not on the on another radio program, admitted he violated FAC regulations in terms of fundraising. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's not good. Yeah. That's, he was on this show, but he didn't admit it on this show. <laughs> okay. Well, I, but both places aren't good, yeah. right? And so, and hopefully, and hopefully we can move to a better place. Let me ask you, since you're a finance guy, yeah. uh, and we've only got about two minutes left, but, uh, Becca Ballant said, and I think Peter Welch said the same thing, that they would return the donations from Sam Bankman Freed and his acolytes, and they would donate them to charity, but they did not say mm-hmm. that the, hundreds of thousands of dollars to the ballot campaign from other actors in that sphere You're right. the, would be returned. The CFO the, right, who used the money from FTX to fund these donations, yeah. right? And now – And the dark money super PAC that, and now, that donated. You know, and now people are saying that that money has got to be returned to the creditors of the bankruptcy or to the victims. And should that million dollars be returned? I mean it, it – it's passed. It, it uh, unfortunately, um, you know, it casts a shadow on Vermont. Not so much back ballot, but just on Vermont. Yeah. I think it's something we need to think about. And um, it's a, probably the money will not be returned to uh, to the victims. But you know, what about what happened? I mean, this basically shut down the field on that side. What about you know, where does Molly Gray go to get you know her race back? Okay, that's Ray Donovan. Ronald Reagan era investigation where he said, where do I go to get my re- reputation back? Yeah. Wow. You're reaching back. We're, we're, we're oh reaching gosh. way back in time. Uh, okay. Also last 30 yeah. seconds. Also, what else is on your checklist? Oh, so the website, what uh, the website obviously continue to fundraise and expand our donor base. And for those that are donating, thank you very much. They can but find you at EthanAllen.org. We're also expanding rapidly our communication with the uh, legislators um, that are interested in what we have to say. And uh, we're continuing to work on uh, reporting what's happening in the state. 
And so hopefully we'll be able to, to build up. I want to be able to do more deep dives, more deep research, deep analytical research on a lot of these topics. And a number of them are crying out for like S5, crying out for research. Um, this upzoning of the entire state, crying out for research. Uh, family leave, crying out for research. What No one has been able to quantify what these costs are. And I think to the extent that we can help people identify costs, then, that, then the policymakers can frame their programs in a way that they'll be successful. Myers Mermel, president of the Ethan Allen Institute. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Kevin. Nice and to McClowry, see you. And McClowry, if you're out there, uh, keep writing. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Uh, we're going to take a break. This is Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Hey, it's Kevin Ellis. I'm back on Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Ten minutes from now, we're going to talk to Governor Phil Scott. But before that, we've got to talk a little bit about my uh, weekend plans. The question on the table is, Rusty Deweese, the logger at the Stowe Town Hall with world-famous fiddler from Canaan, Vermont, living in Newbury, I believe, Patrick Ross. Do I go Friday or do I go Saturday? That's the question. And guess who's on the line with us right now? The logger himself, Rusty Deweese. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for welcoming me, uh, Kevin. I do appreciate your show. Friday or Saturday? That's the question. You, are you, you're saying which will be the better performance by Patrick or I, or are you saying weather-wise or, or, or what? Dial it in a little bit more for me. I'm not like one of those politicians. I don't go vague. I go specific. Let's go. Okay. It's all about me, as always. Uh, okay. I, You know, I'm working all day Friday. I, you know, I'm going to have to take a shower. It could be some snow on the ground. I, Saturday gives me more time to prepare uh, for the show. So I'm kind of leaning towards Saturday. But then again, I don't know. It breaks up the weekend. If I, you know, I do it Friday, I've got the rest of the weekend to myself. From a theatrical, now this isn't, well, it is, a, this is, this answer is about you. From a strictly theatrical, uh, cliched point of view, some would say theater goers, the theaterate would say, if you go on an opening night on Friday, then the performers, the energy is very fresh, very tactile, very, a lot of sparks, a lot of sinewy uh, things going on. So you go the Friday night and you see that that newborn babe. Now, if you go Saturday, the people would say, well, they've ironed out the kinks. The, you know, it's more comfortable. They have the rhythms more, the performers. So I would prefer to go Saturday. Now, I'll just say this. Patrick and I don't have kinks, man. We've been doing this for so long. It's kinkless, you know, the show. So I say either night, but I do think it depends on one schedule. Traditionally, if you're a producer, which I am, you would probably count receipts, and you would count receipts over the course of 30 years. You would come up with a higher gross on the Saturday night, especially if you're getting crooked political money like Becca Ballant. Yeah. Okay. See how I tied that in? See how I tied that in? Yeah. This is what you get when you pay 25 bucks for the show. That's called a segue. It was a segue. Um, yeah. but you're, uh, but there's going to be more skiers looking for something to do on Saturday. I might have more locals coming to the show on Friday. Let me just say this, Kevin, and I appreciate that. And everybody listening, 
Um, I've been doing this for 27 years. Not once, and this is, I'm being serious here. Not once have I ever bought an ad on DEV, the Vermont Radio Group, or any print ads or any TV thinking for a second that I gave two craps about a tourist coming to see my show. Right. And I'm being serious. Yeah. So, and I also know that if you're in Stowe, Vermont, if you're in Burlington, if you're in Newbury, and you're a tourist, you're doing your thing. You're not looking where the local yokel yeehaw is going to tell some jokes with the greatest fiddle player in the world. You're, you're basically going to dinner at about 7.30, and you're getting back, and you're, you know, you're changing the batteries on your heated socks. So it's, it's not a big haul that I get from tourists. Yeah, it's uh, okay. Let's get let's get to the details. Um, the logger Stowe Town Hall. Uh, what time? Well, there are eight o'clock shows Friday and Saturday night. If you want to reserve, just so you know that you have seats, um, and you don't pay doing this. It's eight zero two seven nine three one nine zero one you leave your name what night you're going and how many are going and then that's as simple as it is you get there at 20 of eight or seven thirty the beauty of the stowe town hall there's many things about well about so many of these town halls it's upstairs in the middle of a vermont village and hopefully there'll be a couple flurries still coming down and you look out of the windows i try to keep the curtains open so people can look out when they're up there but however it's going to be a little chilly that night so i might have to close the curtains to keep some warmth in but it's going to be fantastic Okay, and if you're lucky, a couple of details here. If you're lucky, uh, actually, Rusty will greet you at the door and take your ticket. There's that. And if you arrive on a tractor, you get in free. Yeah, I might not be doing the tickets just because I know more people coming to these shows, and uh, I would rather chat with them before the show, and Patrick. But also... If you arrive on a tractor, you get in free one person per tractor. I don't know if you, I don't know if you picked up my new thing, Kevin. If it, it says on the, it says on the ad and on the um, poster, if you arrive in a Rivian, you pay five dollars more. <laughs> a Rivian being the fancy electric truck. Yeah, and I am holding people to that. There'll be a little jar there if you've come in a Rivian. You because I fit. This is the deal. If you're in a Rivian in an electric vehicle, well. You're saving money. So you have more money to spend on your show. Yeah. So you pay extra bucks. Yeah. Where, where are they going to park the tractor? Oh, you put right on the sidewalk. Pull that <laughs> thing right up in front of the store, town hall, back it right in. Oh, yeah, you'll pull it right in there. You got, because ag, you got the ag orange triangle on the back and you, you're free of guilt and you're free of the law. I mean, you can, you, if you're a farmer, you can get away with murder. So, you know what I mean? Pull your tractor right up on the sidewalk. Rusty Deweese, in the flesh, the logger, Stowe Town Hall, 8 o'clock, Friday and Saturday. G- give them your personal cell phone number again so they can reserve yeah. seats. 802-793-1901. You can show up at the door without reserving and you might get in. But I will say this, Kevin. All joking aside, and none of the things that I've said have not been true in my mind, but it, what it is, is 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 a non-affected performance by two guys that are not impressed with themselves, but have made a living uh, entertaining, and it's a community gathering. You'll have this type of person, you'll have that type of person, cozy in the town hall, everything that everybody's crying for. 
that is holistically benevolent will happen in those in those two shows in that theater. And and I might add uh, acceptable to everyone of all ages, right? Yeah, all ages. Now, now the show you recently saw at, at Williamstown, this show will be a little uh, quite a bit more uh, you know, uh, but benign, but, um, I will say people say, should I bring my eight year old kid? I said, Oh yeah, br- people bring their eight year old kids all the time. So if you have an eight year old kid, bring the kid. If you're a bad parent. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, it's entirely possible that eight year old kid might get plucked out of the audience and dragged up on the that's stage. Right. That's right. And then that, that, and then don't, 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 count that kid ever being the valedictorian you know what i mean rusty the logger friday and saturday eight o'clock stow town hall i'll be there hold me a ticket for friday night i got you i got you see ya thanks for joining us thank you bye-bye that was rusty deweese the logger i'm gonna go friday night we answered the question okay we're gonna go back to the phones before we take the governor at 10 30 fred you're on the line how are you hey i got a good one for you shoot on, it's on YouTube. You go to YouTube, and it's called First Amendment Audit. Oh, you yeah. talked about this last week. We've done this. No, we haven't. Yeah, we absolutely did. Well, did you do it? Of course not. How crazy it is? No, uh, you, the, the, the pile of books on my nightstand is so high that I can't get to it. No, no, no. no. This, you don't have to read. I just have to sit back and watch it. I'll explain it to you. The police have no comprehension of the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, or the Fifth Amendment. They can't. They don't understand it. It's crazy. You ought to. You ought to watch it. You gotta watch it. Okay. This guy's walking down the si- sidewalk, and he's taking pictures of a of a company across the way that makes military uh, equipment, right? And so somebody from the company calls up and says, "Hey, this guy's taking my pictures of my place. I want you." to so the cops have to come and, you know, look at the place and because it's a, com- a complaint. And they say, you can't be here. He says, well, geez, I'm on a public sidewalk. I can walk on a public sidewalk all my life. And as a matter of fact, anything that's in view from the public sidewalk is perfectly legal. I can take pictures of it. Fred, I got to go. I got to I gotta go to a break and then go to the governor. But thanks for calling. Uh, and... I, you did talk about that last week, and I promise I will do it uh, in between everything else i got to do. But uh, I can't guarantee you. Okay, we're going to come back with Governor Phil Scott in a couple of minutes. Uh, we're going to take this break. I'm Kevin Ellis. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV, the friendly pioneer. In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. We're back on Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis on WDEV. And our guest joining us for the next half hour is the governor himself, Phil Scott. Welcome, sir. Good morning, Kevin. How are you? I'm good. 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 Be- you? Before we get to 
politics and all the usual stuff, uh, do you have a weather report beyond what Roger Hill is uh, reporting? Should we batten down the hatches on the highways? What are you hearing? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, we're going to get a storm. Uh, I think that's good news in some respects. It's going to come overnight, and uh, it's going to impact travel tomorrow morning. So just plan accordingly. It's just another storm, though. We're all used to this living in Vermont. We haven't had as much of it uh, this year as we have in past years, but uh, but again, just just plan ahead. We'll be uh, we'll be fine. We'll get through it. The the V Trans is all set to go. Everybody's uh, raring to go, and and uh, we'll take care of the storm, in, including the uh, snowplow su- uh, uh, supervisor down in Jamaica, who I interviewed on the show, a young woman whose name I can't remember now, but uh, we had a great time on the show. Um, okay. Before we get to the policy stuff, I got to ask you, why on earth would you want have to run for another term for this job? <laughs> <laughs> well, I ask myself that almost every two years. Uh, when I go to some of these conferences, the National Governors Association conference was last year, last week, and uh, I was in D.C. and and invariably, it's always someone who asks another governor from another state, and and they'll say. Are you up in this cycle? And I said, we're, we're up every cycle. Um, we're up every two years. And and they just can't believe we have two-year terms. Us in New Hampshire, the only two states in the country that do this. Everyone else is uh, four years. And they say, how do you how do you do it? And I keep saying, you know, it's like one you know term at a time. Uh, don't don't plan too far ahead and. And again, from my perspective, uh, I've been had the latitude to to not count on being governor. I never aspired to be governor. I I just thought it was the right uh, right moment in time for me to be governor. So uh, again, if I uh, if I were to lose uh, the next election, whatever election I'm in, um, I I'm okay with that. I I have other things I can do and want to do, and so it's not something I count on. Um- you are arguably the most popular Republican in this country. Um, and I think I'd venture to guess that that attitude that you just described plays a part in that popularity. Um, what, what, what's your current view of the nation, the Republican Party, you've been outspoken about the, the Trump effect. Uh, we see, we may be moving past that, but, Assess for us, as you look across the country, our tribal politics and um, where we're headed in 2024. Are things getting better and more respectful or less so? I I certainly hope so. Um, again, it gives me great hope when I go to um, functions like the National Governors Association, uh, where it's a bipartisan uh, affair. Uh, we have uh, governors on both sides of the aisle there. And if you put them all on a stage and, and just, you know, maybe took the national press out of it and just talked with them, uh, I don't know as you could tell uh, a Republican from a Democrat in some respects. And uh, that gives me some hope um, that they're, they're just they're, they're honest about what they're trying to accomplish. Um, and and not every governor comes. I mean, you know, there are some who are so partisan on both sides of the aisle that they don't uh, they don't attend. But the vast majority do. And uh, I always uh, have thought it's really the middle 
uh, of uh, the political spectrum that gets things done. They accomplish things. Uh, they're uh, more willing to be open-minded. They're they're not worried about the next election. They're not catering uh, to their uh, their constituency. And uh, I certainly, uh, again, it's the tribalism we see, the polarization throughout the country, uh, the extremes pulling further and further apart. Uh, you think of it, you know, in, in years past, uh, when you look at history and politics and so forth, there's always a pendulum that went back and forth, um, sometimes a little more liberal, sometimes more conservative, and, and it, it swayed back and forth. I when over the last decade, it seems as though uh, that pendulum is just split and it's just pulled apart. And we need to try and meld that back together and and get so we're back in the center and trying to do what we can. Forget about the power, forget about the ego and uh, just do what's right for people and, and kind of read the room. I mean, I, again, I think most Americans, most Vermonters, I believe, are independent thinkers, um, but but sometimes they believe what they hear, and sometimes the the person with the biggest uh, megaphone uh, gets their point across, and uh, or the most money, and it's uh, it really is unfortunate uh, what what we become. But I, but again, I I sincerely hope uh, that if we act appropriately, we act with uh, civility. Uh, respect and listen to one another. We can we can learn something, but we can also do great things. Because at the end of the day, you know we're we're all we're all Americans, and uh, and we're, we're, we don't have to be um, Democrats or Republicans. We're we're Americans. That's first, and uh, and I think we just have to keep reminding ourselves of that. In in your budget address, uh, I was as I was listening. Several weeks ago, you had a, a, par, a, a, a section in there talking about yourself as a, quote, shop kid, unquote. Uh, you're a Barry guy. Uh, you talked about electricians, plumbers, and contractors uh, and the importance of tradespeople. Uh, and that you were, and I thought this was the most fascinating, you'd take your college prep classes in the morning and then head off to the vocational center in the afternoon, and you were kind of caught between those two worlds. Uh, and you were, you, you aspired to, uh, a time when the stigma of the shop kid was gone. And I wonder if you could talk to us about that when, when we are now living in a time where you cannot get a plumber for three months or an electrician. Yeah, a lot of, a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Uh, and, but let me talk to you about, you know, my own experience and, and I've always been a hands-on learner. Um, yeah. and I love to build things. I love to create things. I love to problem solve and make things better. Uh, that's how I'm built. And, uh, so at an early age, I just, uh, I, I just loved to, you know, woodworking or mostly woodworking in, in the beginning. Uh, but I loved industrial arts, and uh, it gave me – I remember when I was 12, I think I was 12 years old, all I wanted – my mom asked me, what do you want for your birthday? And I said, I'd like an electric jigsaw. Uh, that's what I'd like. Right. Uh, and I got it. Uh, and it was a Black & Decker, heavy stainless steel Black & Decker jigsaw, and so I could build things. And I think uh, – Again, that 
that informed me, that framed me. Um, but uh, but at the same time, I was struggling because I I wanted to go to college. I was expected to go to college. I guess not that uh, my parents put any pressure on me uh, in that regard. But I just felt as though that's what you're supposed to do. But I also uh, knew that I liked the other part of that world. I liked to just, you know, work, work with my hands. And I was pretty good at it. And so um, so I said, well, yeah, I'd like to do a little bit of both. And so I went uh, again, as you said, I, I did my uh, my college prep in the morning and then head off to the vocational uh, school in the afternoon. I was in the machine trades program then um, with lathes and, and mills and so forth and welding. Uh, and, uh, and I did feel as though I was caught uh, between those two worlds because I'd have some of the vocational, uh, the kids in my vocational class would kind of, you know, look at me like, what are you doing with us? Uh, right, right, and then and the same in the morning. Uh, you know, where why are you where are you going? You're, why are you why are you here with us? Right. Why don't you go over to the vocational center? And and there was a stigma attached to that. But things have you know some of the most successful people I know, um, and uh, and and the most talented, the smartest people I know, some of them never went to college. Uh, they actually ventured out into the trades and built their own businesses and so forth. And the rest uh, is history. But we, you know, this is a new age. And uh, when you look at the average age of a, of a construction worker in Vermont at being over 50 years old, it kind of tells you what our challenge is. And, and you alluded to it, you know, try and find them, an electrician or a plumber and, and going to this electrification, you know, and I'm, I'm all in, you know, I think that's, that's the path we ought to venture down. This is where we ought to go. Uh, if we want to reduce our carbon emissions, uh, we have to go to electricity. But uh, but it's going to take some work to get there. We need to upgrade our grid. We need to, to, to put in heat pumps. We need to retrofit homes. We need to do all these things. Uh, and all of everything that we want to do, all the, the billions of dollars we have at our disposal right now, whether it's housing or broadband or water, sewer, and storm water, or, you know, upgrading our roads and bridges. And on top of all the normal maintenance we do, it's going to take folks in the trade. And we don't have enough people right now. Right. And, uh, and that's something I, I talked about when I first ran uh, for governor, you know, that 631, six fewer workers in our workforce every single day because we're aging out, we're getting older, we didn't have as many kids, 30,000 fewer kids in our school. Uh, than we did uh, 20 years ago. I mean, those are those are that's real data, and uh, again, that's that shows you we we desperately need more people into our state, and and then again, it informs a lot of other things that I see that needs to happen. Uh, that's why immigration reform for me is something that's important. We need more people here, and uh, and we need we need Congress to act on immigration reform, something that both parties have ignored, or just tried to utilize that as another tool for the next election, either to get elected or to prevent somebody else from being elected. And they've used that game you know, time and time again, when really, um, I, I think if you, again, you sit people down and say, this is what we, 
they, they might say, yeah, yeah, now is the time because this would help me. Uh, and if they just stop worrying about the next election and just did what's right, then we'd all be better off. Governor, you talked in your budget address and inaugural about a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity because of lots and lots of federal dollars, COVID dollars, infrastructure money. Um, let me just make the quick list off the top of my head that the legislature is considering. Universal meals, paid family leave, child care, uh, climate, uh, affordable heat. Um, it strikes me that you, you, all of you, you have the similar goals, but you were very clear in your budget address that you're not going to support new taxes or fees, but that these goals can be achieved without raising costs on Vermonters. Can you tell us where you are today, given that the affordable heat bill is moving? So is the paid family leave bill. Um, let's get you on the record about how you feel about what's going on in the legislature. Yeah, I, I still feel the same way, uh, Kevin. Um, I believe our goals are similar, um, but how we get there, um, we're a ways apart. Um, like paid family leave, I, I think this is uh, uh, this is something that uh, would be is something we need. Uh, we've introduced a program uh, that the state employees uh, we bargained with the state employees, so we're going to implement this. Uh, but this is, uh, it has like 8,000 state employees will be able to take advantage of this, of this program. And, uh, but we did it with, uh, with the Hartford, uh, an insurance company, and, uh, they are going to oversee it. Uh, we don't have to raise any money, uh, to have in, in the bank, so to speak, to pay out the claims. We don't have to oversee it with, we don't have to hire people, uh, to, to actually, uh, to, to organize this and implement it. To, we, we just need the Hartford to do this. And uh, the way this approach is, uh, it, what I'm saying is they're, they're going to be able to offer this uh, to the general public uh, in another year, year and a half So after we put this into place. And so the base is, is the state employees, and, and the rest uh, would be uh, offered to uh, individuals and, and businesses alike. And then they can determine whether they want to uh, pay it, pay it. The employers want to pay it, or the employees want to pay it, or a combination of the two. Whatever, whatever works for the individual businesses. And and I think that this is an approach uh, that has a great deal of benefit. We will be able to see because I'm not sure the legislature at this point in time knows exactly how much this will cost. Nor do I. In some respects, I can spitball this, and I, sure. I can tell you that I I think it's going to be. You know, somewhere they think, I, I think I heard their figure, maybe 20 million is being bantered, bantered around in the legislature. I think it's going to be more like, you know, 50 to 100 million. Um, so considering that gap, we'll be able to see exactly what this will cost um, because we're going to put it, it's, it's here, it's now, and, and we're doing it. Let's take it for a test drive for a year or two years or three years for you. And then after we get all this information and see if we want to make it mandatory at that point um, and, and create a tax to pay for it, okay, let's have that conversation. But we'll be well-informed at that point. We'll, be able to, we'll know exactly what it's going to cost and what we have to do to get there. And we don't have to create another uh, bureaucracy to oversee it. And by the way, we have 800 state employees we can't hire today. We, we don't have enough people in the state. We have 
800 openings in state government right now. Wow. And uh, so I don't know where I heard I, I heard the treasurer's office who may oversee this. They said it might take 40 people uh, to oversee this this program. I don't know where you're going to find 40 people. Right. Uh, uh, you know, I just don't. So that's just one example. So, so that's paid family leave. Climate. How about affordable heat? Uh, say, let's let's move forward without penalizing the very people we're trying to help. Uh, again, our Secretary of Natural Resources, Julie Moore, uh, has said she thinks because nobody's been able to to again uh, identify how much this is going to cost. But she said, based on her um, her uh, back of the napkin type approach, uh, and she's an engineer. Uh, she does this kind of work. Uh, I trust her her uh, analysis of this. She thinks it's going to be somewhere around seventy cents a gallon. Uh, yeah. To it's going to be it's going to cost you because these are credits the fuel company will have to buy and then um, to to, uh, to in order to sell fuel but to offset what they're doing. Um, so they're going to. They're, it's not as though they're going to absorb this cost. They're going to pass it on to the to the customer. So. It's, she thinks it would cost seventy cents a gallon. So, so again, all this we agree. I agree with the decarbonization uh, of our energy sources. I believe we can get there, but not as aggressively as they think we can. And I think we should do this without penalizing the very people we want to help. So, think about um, somebody living in a, a mobile home at this point in time. They have an outside tank. They're paying a lot of money for kerosene right now. It's kerosene is about five, six bucks a gallon over what uh, number two fuel is, uh, because it has to be a, a lighter consistency because it's sitting in a above ground tank outside their mobile home. So they're paying more money even before this seventy cents was is added on. And if they want to go to to change over to a heat pump so they don't have to to utilize this or some sort of electrical device. Uh, they're going to have to have that installed. Install it to that point. You're going to need the energy, the electricity uh, to come through from the grid in order to to uh, fuel uh, this heat pump. Um, and unfortunately, when you have a, a mobile home or, or a house, maybe uh, an older home or a ranch house that was built in the 70s, they're all like a 60-amp service that comes in. That's not enough. Right, you know, to, to, to with a heat pump and to charge your your electric vehicle at your home, you're going to need you know somewhere between 100 and 200 amp service, and that's going to cost money. Ten, yeah. You know, maybe eight ten thousand dollars to retrofit this mobile home in order to do that. And not so to mention, they don't have the money. Yeah, and not to mention, in where I live in East Montpelier, Washington Electric has to install a new transformer on the pole for yeah. my electric car, and they can't get it for six months. Right, well, <laughs> that's what I mean. Like it's, it goes beyond just your home, too, right? Right. It's right. The whole electrical grid, and you have to think about that and plan ahead. We talked about this uh, at the National Governors Association. I had a, a panel uh, with uh, uh, Governor Lamont uh, in. Uh, of Connecticut, a Democrat, I'm Republican. We work together on this, and we face the same challenges, right? We we all want to move towards this uh, this decarbon decarbonized uh, electric electrical future, but 
it's not a flip of the switch. And and to do it, we're really going to have to be measured. But we can't we can't punish the people, those people that can't afford to do anything different. So at the end of the day, if they can't afford to upgrade their home, um, they're going to end up having to pay more money uh, for their fuel, and that doesn't really decarbonize anything. So let's 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 keep our eye on the ball here. Let's take care of the fundamentals. Let's do what we can um, with weatherization, helping with upgrades, new uh, with any new builds. They should have a 200 amp service, and we should we should install heat pumps. It will be lucrative for them to do it. It's the same with vehicles. Like as you know, um, I we put one into our fleet, and I I get to ride around that every single day. A Ford F-150 Lightning. Love the vehicle. We got 15,000 miles on it. And, uh, and it's been – we haven't had any problems with it whatsoever. But getting to a place where you can charge it up, yeah. sometimes that's a challenge. And, right. and you have to think about it. And, and it's been a great learning experience for me. But what it tells me, informs me, is even though we lead the country in the amount of charging infrastructure that we have in our state, better than any other state in the country – uh, we still have a long ways to go, and we need to do that. We need faster chargers. Uh, I've got a lightning round of issues, which I can't get to, uh, zoning for housing, uh, emergency hotels. I, I do want to ask you before we let you go about the State College announcement on libraries and sports programs. Um, it strikes me as this might be the maybe the right thing to do on paper, but badly executed. What's your view? Yeah, I, I would say I – I understand uh, the dilemma. We all understand the dilemma with the state college system. Um, they need to come up. They need to become more efficient. Uh, they have to find ways to save money. We've injected a lot of money to keep them going, and we want to do more. We think that's important. Um, and uh, but they may uh, want to, to think about their strategy and how they roll this out. Governor and, Scott. And, we got to go. You're so kind to join us. Uh, Governor Phil Scott, uh, as always, it's a pleasure to have you. Thanks very much. Okay. Take care. Take care. Governor Phil Scott, it's Vermont Viewpoint. I'll see you Friday. It's Kevin Ellis on WDEV.